You're listening to City Church. All right, all right, all right, all right. You feel better about yourself already, don't you? You can turn to somebody and say, I feel better about myself already. Good morning, and uh, I'm excited to dig into the scriptures with you, talk about a really uh, important topic. If you have a Bible, you can go to Galatians chapter 5. We'll start there. Galatians chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Galatians is a book written by the Apostle Paul. We're just going to read one verse today, but uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. And, uh, and he's writing about getting free from the bondage of works and the law and the flesh. And he talks about freedom a lot in this book. And uh, we're going to read one little passage about freedom. You ready? Is it going to be good? You ready? Okay. All right. Here we go. For you were called to freedom. This is verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. We're going to talk on the topic today of sexual addiction. Sexual addiction. Let's pray. God, we love you. Grateful that we have time today and uh, that we've had time over the last two weeks to talk about these really intense topics, these topics that are difficult for us to, um, you know, discuss as a church. And I pray that today, that by the Holy Spirit, that you would uh, make these topics clear, that you would bring healing and freedom, and that you would teach us what it means to be free. I pray for honesty and transparency uh, amongst all the people here together today. We love your church, and we thank you for this chance. Amen. Amen. I see this life like a swinging vine, swing my heart across the line, and my face is flashing signs, seek it out, and you shall find old, but I'm not that old, young, but I'm not that bold, and I don't think this world is sold, I'm just doing what we're told, I feel so right doing the wrong thing, and I feel so wrong doing the right thing, I could lie, I couldn't lie, I could lie, everything that kills me. Oh, you wicked people, you all knew the song, shame on you. Yeah, no, no, yeah, it's a super catchy song. I remember uh, maybe it was a couple weeks ago, we were singing in uh, my car, and we were just kind of in my minivan, that's right, in my minivan. I was driving, my beautiful wife was sitting next to me, and my three kids were in the back, and uh, this song comes on, it's got that beat, you know, and uh, and we're just rocking out to this song, you know, like me and my kids, like, old, but I'm not that old, you know, like my kids in the back, just like, you know, and then all of a sudden, it's like, Everything that kills me makes me feel alive. And I'm like, uh, do I want my kids singing that? Like, hold on a second. It's like a Christian dad moment. Wait a second. I think I missed something. Uh, you know, it, it is an incredibly catchy song with a very universal truth that people seem to be aware of the fact that the things that are killing them are exciting. And yet um, we realize that we're dying from these things, but we don't stop doing them. In fact, Culturally, we even celebrate this idea that it's killing me. Isn't it great? You know, like, yeah, awesome. Like, this is a wonderful thing. I think of uh, a guy like Elvis Presley as an incredible picture of this terrifying reality. Here's a man who, in his 20s, is just an incredible success, very handsome, very talented, very attractive, very successful. And if you ever Google Elvis Presley, for those of you, you know, that were born in the 90s, there was this guy named Elvis Presley, all right? Uh, he was a pretty important guy uh, many moons ago. But uh, he, uh, he, you know, you Google a picture of him and you'll find that, like, he goes from, like, super handsome, awesome to, like, 
super overweight, disheveled, terrible looking. And uh, if you know his story, addiction just destroyed his life. I mean, from the 20s to the 30s into his early 40s, he became an addict. He put on a ton of weight. He couldn't even function as a human being. And he was found at 42 years old, dead on his bathroom floor. I mean, that's not a way to live. That's not a way to die. And this idea of addiction kind of um, really impacts every single one of us. I would consider our generation, this era of humanity, really the kings of addiction. I mean, we have addiction in a thousand different ways. People are addicted to cigarettes. And I'm not trying to beat you up if you're addicted to cigarettes, but it's, it's real. And the cigarettes are like $250 a pack now, and people are still buying them. And it's like, hey, you can't pay your mortgage. I know, but I got to die with cigarette smoke. You know, I mean, it's just not even rational. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to pick on you. This is real. This is the addictive stuff we deal with. Um, we deal with alcohol addiction. People just cannot stop. And it's not like anybody doesn't know that, hey, if you drink a lot of alcohol and drive in your car, you're probably going to kill yourself and somebody else. And yet every single day, day people are doing it and we're doing it and it's not for lack of intelligence right it's not an intelligence problem um, I mean, you know those are dangerous addictions that kill you but there's other addictions that are more subtle that we deal with like cheese <laughs> cheese is so yummy you know saltine crackers oh my goodness my wife buys uh from trader joe's because you know that's how we roll trader joe's uh i guess and sort of begrudgingly but anyways um she buys these chocolate-covered raisins, and I can, like, eat an entire mountain of chocolate-covered raisins if I'm not careful there. Like, you really just can't eat one. Uh, some of us are addicted to Facebook, and you can't even go through a church service without checking your Facebook or updating your Instagram. You have this addiction to Facebook. Stop it. Stop, stop checking it right now. You have this addiction <laughs> to Facebook. You're always kind of, you know, some of us are addicted to Apple products where you will spend a day and a night, like, standing outside of a store just so you can buy a gigantic phone that's too big anyways. It's like, hello, you know, dude, but you're so, you know, it's like, I need it. I need to have it. It has to be mine. You know, there's all these different addictions, um, 1.9 million Americans addicted to cocaine, one, uh, two million Americans addicted to heroin. But heroin and cocaine, though they are incredibly serious, are tiny in their impact in comparison to what I would consider, and I believe statistically you could prove, America's greatest addiction. 40 million Americans confess to being addicted to internet pornography. 40 million. So sex addiction takes many forms, okay? It's not just internet pornography. It could be little website chats that are, you know, you're doing or texting back and forth with someone in a sexual way or fantasizing consistently or reading really, you know, sexual romance novels or, you know, looking at a lingerie magazine. All these are different manifestations that can become sex addiction and on and on and on. The list is far too long for us to account for all of them. But internet pornography specifically, 35% of all downloads on the internet are pornographic material. 93% of all men have viewed internet pornography before the age of 18. 93%. Uh, 11 is the age of the average first-time viewer. 11. And uh, 68% of Christian men admit to regularly viewing pornography. And so, you know, some of the ladies are like, men are just messed up. They are. Men are messed up. And so are you. One out of three women, one out of three people that visit uh, websites that are pornographic are women. One out of three. And 70% of women that battle with consistent internet pornography addiction or any sexual addiction actually are secretive about it and don't tell anyone. 
And so this is really not a man problem or a woman problem. It is a human problem. And some people don't think it's a problem. But as we've unpacked over the last two weeks a different story about um, sexuality, we begin to see that this issue of pornography becomes a massive issue, right? A debilitating, destructive issue. And so, um, again, not just pornography, but really sexual addiction in general. Week one, if you remember, we talked about the story of sexuality, right? And we talked about how humanity is believing today this story that says, listen, you're an accident. There's no, there's no actual divine seed in you. You're not something special. You're just a combination of a bunch of molecules and you don't have any divine purpose or structure. All you have is just, you know, your emotions. So you should pursue these passions, fulfill these desires. That's how you'll actualize yourself. Right, And so that's the story. And of course, that story leads to slavery and pain and bondage and fun for a little while. And then again and again and again, it becomes painful and bondage and slavery and addiction and hurt and destruction. And so we looked at this story of Jesus and the narrative of God that said that, no, 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 you're not an accident that just kind of popped up out of nowhere. You're a divine creation and God designed you with a specific purpose and sexuality was designed for a specific reason, right? And it mirrors the one man and one relationship and one woman uh, divinely connected in a marriage covenant for life mirrors the glory of what God wanted to do through the world in reconciling the world to God and in bringing the church to be his bride. So we unpacked this and we talked about this story and the bigger story, the narrative of the gospel helps us understand sexuality. Then we looked last week at this idea of identity, right? You remember this? We talked about how your sexual identity is not based upon your sexual inclinations, right? But identity has a deeper source that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are chosen, you are holy, you are royal, you are God's possession. And so this new version of who you are overwhelms or overcomes. You fight fire with fire and the fire of your new identity in Christ overwhelms that false identity of self. And so we learn we can't trust all of our passions and all of our emotions because there's something bigger than your passions to define you. And so this is some big stuff, some pretty huge stuff. But now we realize that these things are really just theory if you don't deal with the actual actions that many of us are battling with every single day in the world of sexual addiction. And so um, C.S. Lewis said it best when he talked about the sex addict and uh, pornography. He said, always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among these shadow brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. You guys remember two weeks ago I said that you can't separate the purpose of sex and the pleasure of sex, right? You can't pull the pleasure of sex out of the purpose of sex without destroying the pleasure of sex, right? And so the purpose of sex and the pleasure of sex must run together. You guys remember that? That wasn't very encouraging. Okay. And so what we see is that sexuality and specifically intimacy and intercourse becomes the glue to, to, to tie two people together. But what if that glue is used for a different purpose? 
right? What if you take the glue of intimacy and you start to use it for another purpose? Well, uh, a number of chemicals are released in your brain during intimacy and sexual experiences. One is dopamine. This intensifies your focus. One is norepinephrine. This is a memory enhancer. One is testosterone. It creates a greater desire for more oxytocin. We talked about a couple weeks ago is this tranquilizer. And then there's this serotonin that's released that produces a calmness. And now these chemicals were designed by God to glue a man and a woman together for life so that psychologically, mentally, emotionally, and physically, they were connected, right? But what happens if you use those same chemicals and experience the high of them without the other person that you're committed to for life in marriage? Well, what happens is everything starts to get out of whack. Everything starts to get distorted. The first thing that happens is the images that you're looking at that are not your wife get burned into your brain. Okay, so whether it be a video or a movie or whatever it is that you're watching or a, or a TV show or whatever it is that has these sexual references, these highs become ingrained upon your mind. And many of us know this, that you looked at something in, you know, some pornographic something 10 years ago and you can still recall it. Stop it. <clears throat> you can still recall it at any moment, right? That's this thing that happens because it gets burned into your mind. It's the glue that was supposed to knit you to your husband or to your wife, right? And so... It creates now a hunger for more. That's what the testosterone does. And so what happens is the thing that got you high sexually last year will no longer get you high sexually this year. And so the thing that you experienced 12 months ago that was getting you excited sexually will now no longer do it. And so people move from lingerie magazines to more pornography, to more explicit pornography, to more video pornography, to more child pornography, to more on and on and on. And before you know it, you're somebody you never wanted to be just trying to get the high that you got three years ago much more easily that's what happens that's what happens many of us know this you're like crud why did i come to church today but something else starts to happen your view of the other becomes distorted and so if you're a man and you're looking at woman or woman whatever it is that you're doing to get a sexual high that individual gets flattened out and no longer are they a 3d person with a dad and a mom and a brother and a sister and armpit hair and smelly breath. Now they are a one-dimensional image and they shift from a human that should be alongside someone to a God that's worshiped. And now we find ourselves idolizing and deifying and glorifying people who we're attracted to and we strip them of their humanity and treat them like an object. And so by objectifying these individuals, we lose the substance of what is real life. But sexual addiction doesn't just mess with your head. Uh, there's, greater there's greater decay that happens. Of course, the scripture says that this is sin, that lusting over someone is sin in your heart. So you've committed a crime against God, and now you've distorted your mind. But beyond that, it gets worse. You've corrupted your most intimate relationships. And so um, statistically, I just read recently, the spouse of a sex addict reports higher uh, degrees of depression, a higher probability to overeat, a greater inability to sleep, greater inability to hopelessness. They've even connected suicidal tendencies with being the spouse of a sex addict. Kids of a sex addict have all types of ramifications that they've tried to, uh, you know, organize and, de and quantify. One is greater difficulty trusting people. One is lower self-esteem, uh, distance from friends, sensing a consistent distance from God. These are all the ramifications of your kids 
when you start to find yourself addicted to sexual sin. You might say, well, Justin, this is a personal thing. This is just a me issue. It's not really impacting those around me. Friend, there is nothing further from the truth. So it doesn't just impact your brain, which it does. It doesn't just impact your closest relationships, which it does. The most dangerous and most terrifying and the the greatest loss that we have is that the sex addict compromises his calling and his confidence before God. And so you might say, well, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Let me give you an illustration. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard the story of Samson. Um, Samson in the Old Testament was a guy who had all the promise in the world. He was um, well-respected from day one. He was prophesied over to be a great deliverer of the people of Israel. And, uh, and he grows up. He's intelligent. He's handsome. He's strong. He's a good leader. Everything seems to be clicking. Uh, God has great plans for him. God's planning to use Samson to deliver his people from the power and the oppression of the Philistines. And so Samson is this incredible warrior and leader. And uh, one little problem is he's a sex addict. Samson has this thing that he can't seem to beat. He consistently decides to compromise his closest relationships, compromise his commitment to Jesus, compromise his uh, faithfulness to the call of God for sexual pleasure. And he does it again and again and again. And at first it seems that it's not impacting him. That's often the way it is, by the way. At first it seems you're getting away with it. It's like, hey, this is only affecting me. It's not that big of a deal. I'm 16 years old. I'm looking at porn three times a week, five times a week, 10 times a week. What's the big deal? Or listen, I'm 46. My wife doesn't even know it's not a big deal. Or listen, I'm a single woman. Woman and no one else knows my struggle and, and it's not that big of a deal. And we think to ourselves, it's really not costing anybody very much, but that is a massive lie. And here we see Samson giving away eventually his calling. Interestingly enough, the moment that he compromises his commitment to God, he breaks covenant with God. Immediately he's attacked and captured by his enemy. And the first thing they do, I think this is prophetic, by the way, is he, they rip out his eyes. The very thing that, um, man, the very thing that was drawing him away. They rip out his eyes and throw him in prison. And here he is, this once incredible guy. And if you know the story of Samson, you know the story ends with him going out into an arena and everybody's mocking and laughing at Samson. And he pushes over the pillars of the building and the building falls down and crushes him. And some people read it and go, oh, see, he still did great things for God. He killed a bunch of bad guys. Isn't that awesome? But what we don't realize is, hey, do you notice that he died under the weight of a building that he pushed over on himself? What a prophetic picture of the cost. He just destroyed himself. And the question becomes, what could have Samson been? How many people could he have delivered? How many people could he have set free? How powerful and important could he have been in the great story of God? How could he have set an entire nation free? But he decided instead to diddle around with the passions of his flesh until they bit him and killed him. I was trying to think of an illustration of the cost of this. And my heart burns in this area. And I'll share more about my story and why it's so important to me. But too often, I see followers of Christ crippled by a secret sexual addiction. Lacking confidence. Lacking passion for God. Lacking faith and initiative. You know, I was thinking about this. I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke it to me this week. I was uh, just actually in a prayer time, and because that's what I do all day. Let's pray. And, uh, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, Justin, you know what the first sin of Adam was? First sin of mankind was? And I said, uh, he ate the fruit, right? 
And, and um, the Lord just reminded me, no, no, the first sin of mankind was that Adam did nothing. He lacked initiative. He stood back and watched as his wife disobeyed God and he didn't intervene. That was the first sin. And, you know, mankind has been lacking initiative ever since. And this sexual addiction becomes for people a spiritual castration where you become a spiritual eunuch because you get robbed of the passion that is in you. See, back in the day, if they wanted to rob a man of his zeal, of his courage, of his passion, they would perform a castration upon him, right? And it would cause his facial hair to fall out, and it would cause his muscles to shrink, and it would cause his personal initiative to be lost, and he would become just a shell of a man, just docile and, and weak and unwilling to break through and really be a victor. And that's exactly what happens in the spirit when we become sex addicts. Our hearts want to do big things for God, but we lack the passion the courage, the initiative, because we've been castrated spiritually and we're left in this kind of docile state of, well, I'm scared, I'm ashamed, I'm not sure, is God with me? Does he even love me? And if you notice, the passage that we read today, it paints a very different picture of our calling. Look at what it says. You can throw it up there, verse 13. It says, for you were called to freedom. Freedom. Now, in the context of this passage, this means freedom from the law, freedom from the habitual laws of the uh, Old Testament in that you would earn your way to God. You're free from that. He's also speaking that you're free from the habitual bondages of sin, right? He says you're called to freedom. Now, in our world, we think of freedom and we think of autonomy. Autonomy. In other words, freedom means I'm not accountable to anybody. I can do whatever I want. That's the American version of freedom, right? I'm autonomous. I have complete control. But in Christ, that's actually a lie. Autonomy is slavery to self and sin. See, when you become autonomous in every way, you find yourself drifting into particular addictions and then becoming enslaved to those addictions. And so scripture says you have either one of two choices. You can be a slave to sin and self, or you can be a slave to God. Those are your two choices. And what we find is that slavery to sin and self, though it may seem autonomous, is actually slavery. But slavery to God is the greatest form of human freedom ever imaginable because we have a God who is good, who loves us, and who is for us. So when I enslave myself to Christ, he enables me to be truly free. That was really good, by the way. That was like a whole sermon. I didn't come up with that. That's in the Bible. But um, so what we see in Scripture is this idea, when he says you're called to freedom, he's saying you're called to be enslaved to Christ. And when you're enslaved to Christ, you experience the fullness of what it means to be human. The fullness of what God intended for humanity. You can experience the greatest highs, the greatest fullness, the greatest fulfillment of pleasure in Christ. And so he says, you're called to freedom. You're called to this freedom. And so we understand that the gospel enables this freedom. That God, who knew no sin, Jesus, becomes sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's this divine exchange called the gospel, right? Where Christ takes upon our sin on the cross and he gives us the righteousness that belongs to him. And then before God, I stand blameless and perfect from the day I was born to the day I died because of the justification found in Jesus Christ. This is the great scandal of the good news of Jesus. It's not do better, do better, do better, do better. God will like you. It's receive forgiveness, receive grace, receive unmerited favor. Be given an identity that is a free gift. You're chosen, you're holy, you're beloved, you're accepted, you're adopted. And in that, you now become who God's called you to be, right? 
right? Okay, good. We talk about that a lot here. We'll keep talking about it a lot. It says for freedom, that's what you're called, brothers. Only, look at the verse again, <clears throat> only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. See, some would say, and this is important, some would say, oh, huh, you're telling me that God's going to forgive me of all my sins forever. All I have to do is pray a prayer and fill out a card and say yes, and now I'm clean of all sins and I can go live like hell. That sounds awesome. The scriptures say, no, actually, you can't. It says, actually, that the new creation plants inside you a divine seed, that when you're born from above, the spirit of God and your spirit become one, like in marriage, two people become one, intermingling as one flesh. So in the spirit, the greater picture, I become one with God. And now the spirit of God lives inside me, which will cause me to have a deep passion for holiness because he's the Holy Spirit. And so if I have no passion or desire for holiness, I am not saved. That's what the scripture teaches. It says, I'm not saved if I don't have that passion. Now, the process of holiness is called sanctification, and it takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime to become free and holy, but the passion, desire, longing, ambition for that holiness is planted in us when we're in Christ, and we see inside of us a great desire, a bent towards pursuit of God, and that is the evidence of Christ in me. And so what he's saying is he's saying, if you think that this is an opportunity for the flesh, you don't even have Christ. Okay? Look at the verse one more time with me. It says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But there's a different reason God set you free. This is big. This is worth coming to church today. But through love, serve one another. You remember last week I said that we fight fire with fire, that the fire of sexual passion that is outside of God's plan, can only be overwhelmed by the fire of God's mission and calling. I want you to get a glimpse of the calling today. It says, through love, serve one another. See, our culture would say, through lust, serve yourself. But um, Jesus says, through love, serve one another. And first, first, you need to be loved, loved by God, loved by him in a very deep and profound way. And then that enables you to then go and love. And there's a higher purpose, a higher calling, a higher mission that you get to participate in. Let me try to paint it for you. Samson's not the only guy in scripture that battled with sexual temptation. There's another kid who had 10 older brothers and uh, had some big dreams of ruling nations. Felt like God told him he was going to be a great leader. And so uh, his brothers hated him for it. In the Old Testament, his name is Joseph. And his brothers hated him for it. And they ended up selling him into slavery in Egypt. You maybe know the story. He was young. He was handsome. He was uh, smart and intelligent. And God was with him. And so he finds himself as a young man getting stripped from his family and brought into a foreign land where he doesn't know the language, doesn't know the, don't know the people. And he finds himself now being sold to a guy named Potiphar. And yet in the midst of this, this kid Joseph still prospers. And he becomes really the leader of Potiphar's house. Everything Potiphar owns, he allows Joseph to rule and so joseph becomes this great leader within his house there's just one problem potiphar has this young sexy wife says not in the bible i know i i <clears throat> and she's desperate to sleep with him and so it says day after day day after day this woman says come make love to me come have sex with me come and here he is can you think put yourself in joseph's shoes for a second okay i'm young but i'm not that bold um, I'm in the prime of my life. I have no accountability. It's like you're at college, right? Like, I, I, first time, bam, I'm all by myself now. Nobody's looking over my shoulder. I'm good looking. And God seems to have left. He gave me this great calling, and now I'm a slave in Egypt. 
Why not? You know the story, he says no again and again and again. She finally becomes so frustrated, she frames him and says that he attacked her. He gets thrown in prison. While he's in prison, God uses him to interpret some dreams because he has this prophetic voice. By the way, his ears are open to the Lord because he's consecrated himself for the Lord. And so he hears the Lord and he interprets these prophetic dreams. He ends up interpreting the dream of Pharaoh. Pharaoh puts him in charge of the entire nation to provide a plan to stop a famine. A famine comes, there's seven years of famine. And Joseph had prepared food ahead of time to stop the famine. And because of Joseph and his faithfulness to God, an entire nation is preserved. The people of Israel move to Egypt in the land of Goshen. And Joseph is able to provide for his father and his 12, his 11 other brothers. The nation of Israel survives. The family of God continues the story because one dude didn't sleep with some Egyptian woman. That's the story. Now, the question I've been asking myself all week is, what if this guy decided to do it? What if he said, you know what, forget it. Well, there's a few things that could have happened. He could have gotten caught and he would have been executed. He wouldn't have been there to save all those people. Or he could have gotten away with it, compromised his calling, never ended up in prison, never interpreted the dream of Pharaoh. Or he could have somehow had opportunity to interpret the dream of Pharaoh, but didn't have the spiritual ears to hear it because he was bogged down, spiritually castrated, unable to pursue God with passion and confidence. Here's what I'm getting at today. This isn't a personal issue. Your story is intricately connected to millions of others. And every day that you live, compromising in sexual sin is another day that you numb yourself to the call of God. There's not too many people named Samson today. There's a whole lot of people named Joseph. You got a legacy and for a long time in our world, we said, this isn't a big deal. Everybody does this. What's the, what's the big issue? I think I should just kind of waddle along. Nobody ever gets free. Nobody ever breaks the cycle. It's just the way it is. No, it's not just the way it is. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus steps on the scene. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring uh, liberty to the oppressed, to preach the good news to the poor, to set the oppressed free. He declares this great mission. Jesus basically says, hey, I'm here to set the world free. I'm here to free people from sin, from the law, from self. I'm here to enable people to fully actualize who they are. I'm here to start a new race. We talked about that last week. But then when he ascends to heaven, he says, this is your job now, church. He says, this is your job to free people. It's your mission now. The Apostle Paul, I love the way he says it. He says, I've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. My mission is to see other people get free. Did you notice what the passage said that we looked at? It said, it said, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead, through love, serve one another. In other words, there's a bigger mission that you have opportunity to participate in if you see the purpose of your own freedom. Look at how it said in the message translation of Galatians 5.13. We're going somewhere Stay with me today. It is absolutely clear that God's called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, check this out, use your freedom to serve one another in love. And these four words are crucial. That's how freedom grows. That's how freedom grows. I want you to see it today. Free people, free people. Okay, free people, free people, freedom grows. You can write this down when you leverage your freedom to serve others. That's why you're on the planet, by the way. 
You're here to experience the freedom that comes through the gospel and then leverage that freedom to set other people free. That's why you're here. And I want to tell you the most exciting enterprise on planet earth is seeing free people, free people. That's it. It is the most exciting and joy-filled experience in this earth to see free people, free people. You look at the life of Jesus. He was the most free individual that any, any human being has ever been. And he also humbled himself to the lowest position of serving others by dying on a cross for their sins, even when they didn't care. And we see that great expanse of freedom being leveraged to serve others. And in doing so, he delivers an entire world from the oppression of sin. That's our model, friend. In the same way, Joseph uses his freedom to say, I will not submit myself to this sexual addiction by God's grace. And he stays free. And in serving others, he brings deliverance to an entire nation. Here's what I'm saying. You have the opportunity to impact millions of lives for God, and you're giving it away for a cheap high at 2 a.m. A lot of us here are like, yeah, that sounds great, Justin, but um, I am sexually bipolar. Sounds nice what you're saying, but one day I'm in for God, and the next day I'm in for myself, and one day I'm in, and then a month later I'm back to addiction, and I just, I keep going back and forth, and I don't understand myself, and I'm starting to think I can never be free, and I've shared this story in the past as a uh, follower of Christ. I came out of sexual addiction, and I found myself tangled up in a web of lust and pornography sexual addiction and feeling like I personally had no way of getting out. And, um, and I just uh, cried out to God and I tried accountability and I tried um, reading the Bible more and I tried all these different things. And, you know, it didn't seem to be working. And I remember getting to a place where I was just like, you know what, God, I don't know what to do here. If, if I can't believe in a God who actually sets people free, then what is all this? It's just some gymnastics. And you know, I can say now, on the backside of years and years and years of freedom, that God does set people free. That he set me free of sexual addiction, a guy that had no right being free. He did set me free. And he'll set you free. And I say that humbly because I live my life constantly in the place of humility before the Lord say, God, you know, I didn't set me free. You set me free. I humble myself. But let me tell you something. It's true. It's real. And you can live free from sexual addiction every day. And it will be a fight. And it will be a battle. And it's a battle you can win. And it's a battle worth winning. Because you see what's happening right now? I don't know if you see what's happening right now, but Jesus took one kid who was an addict, who was lustful, who couldn't control his mind or his eyes, and he set me free. And now free people leverage their freedom to serve others so that they can be free. So that when you experience consistent freedom, you're going to go serve somebody else so that they can be free. That's how freedom grows.
I want you to dare to believe that there's something better than a hologram bride or a hologram husband. I want you to believe that there's something better for you than a life of secret addiction that nobody knows about. You're 46 years old and nobody knows and you're so ashamed. It's time to be honest. You're 18 and you're a single woman and you feel like you can't say anything. It's time to be honest. You've prayed with someone 35 million times and you keep stumbling back in and you just don't know what the problem is. It's time to be honest. I don't know what your story, but I do know that 93% of men have viewed pornography by the age of 18, that 68% of Christian men confess being addicted, that one in three viewers are women, and that 70% of women are hiding it, that are battling with it. I don't know what your story is, but I know this is real, and I know that every single person in the room is impacted by sexual addiction. Every single one. If you say to me today, Justin, I'm living free. God's really given me victory and freedom in this area. That's wonderful. Are you leveraging your freedom to free others? Because that's what you need to be doing because there's an entire generation of people that need you desperately. And maybe you're here and saying, I'm not free and I'm all tangled up and I don't know what to do. Well, it's time to begin the journey home. I want to give you five steps today. Quickly, five steps towards freedom, okay? Five steps towards freedom. I have a promise for you. The Holy Spirit spoke this promise to me and I want to give it to you. It's in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 22. It says this. Hear these words today. This is for you. Return all of you who have turned away from the Lord. He will heal you. I love this next line. And make you faithful. Say, I can't be faithful. He'll make you faithful. I can't be healed. He'll heal you. He will heal you and make you faithful. And then look what it says, how the verse ends. It says, you say, and my prayer is that somebody would say this today. You say, yeah, we are coming to the Lord because he is our God. Five steps, that's your invitation. Step number one, brokenness. Brokenness is step number one. You can write these down if you want. Brokenness is step number one. Thomas Merton, one of the great Christian mystics, he said that uh, humility is being precisely the person you actually are before God. Brokenness. I can say that in the thousands of men that I have walked with in this area of sexual addiction, the number one problem is a lack of brokenness. That's the number one problem. That's the doorway into freedom. Until there is extreme brokenness, there can never be extreme freedom. What does brokenness mean? Brokenness means that you are desperately transparent and honest. It means that you don't put on a front, that you don't pretend you're okay. It means that you don't act like it's not a struggle. It means that you're broken. You, and you admit it. You say, this is a mess. It's all shattered. I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't figure myself out and I cannot fix myself. I don't see the way God says to see things. I don't think the way God says to think things. I am broken. When you get to that place and you're willing to admit it and acknowledge it, friend, you're on, ver- you on the road to freedom. That's the first step. Second step, number two, gospel clarity. Gospel clarity means that the things that we're talking about move from theory to fact in your own soul. This idea of the narrative of God becomes your story. This idea of the identity given in Christ becomes your identity, that you embody these truths and you say, I believe them. You rewire your brain. You retrain your thoughts. You embrace this way of thinking. That's gospel clarity. Gospel clarity is the change agent in the human heart. You can't break free from addiction by white knuckling lust. It doesn't work. You must renew your mind through gospel clarity. Brokenness and then gospel clarity. Brokenness and then gospel clarity. You never move away from the foundation of brokenness and you never leave the truth of gospel clarity. Those are the sustaining elements of freedom. Doing okay? 
Number three, make a plan. Make a plan. Some people start with make a plan, and that's why you're so frustrated, because you haven't really done the hard work of brokenness and gospel clarity. But making a plan is crucial. Making a plan is crucial. Some of us, you know, it's like, hey, if you're looking at porn on your phone, get a non-porn phone. Oh, Justin, it's so inconvenient. Well, so is hell. If you can't handle, I know this is going to sound like I'm, like I'm like impossible. If you can't handle a computer, don't have one. Don't have one. <laughs> don't have one. Make a plan. It's going to take some radical steps, by the way. Make a plan. Accountability is a big part of that plan. Uh, everybody, if you could do this, before, we're going to go a little long today because this series just goes long. That's the way it is, okay? There's only one more week. You'll be all right. Pull out for me uh, the welcome pack that you received when you walked in. Go ahead, everybody, just try to find that for a second. Um, that welcome pack, there's a card inside there. I want you to find it with me right now. It says something like, I am interested in more information about attending a class on freedom from sexual addiction. We're going to be starting. Here's how the plan works. We're going to be starting a class in the next couple weeks, a class for men, a class for women that meets once a week. It's not going to be that long. It's going to be about seven weeks long. By the way, you need to sign up, okay? It's, it's a class that teaches you how to be free from sexual addiction. Now, you can't learn this in a class. You have to learn this with brothers and sisters. You have to process brokenness, and you have to process gospel clarity. And this is not a one-time shot. This is a journey along the way, but you must start the journey. We want to help you develop a plan. You should probably fill that card out and drop it in the bucket when you leave. You might say, oh, I'm embarrassed by that. You know what? you got to get beyond being embarrassed and get honest. Make a plan. I don't have time. Yes, you do. Just take the time that you're looking at porn throughout the week and use it for the class. You'll have more than enough time. Make a plan. It means having accountability. It means, I remember for years, I would literally write down a plan and keep it in my front pocket. So the moment that I was tempted sexually, I would look at the plan and I would say, okay, Lord, I'm going to meditate on your scripture. I'm going to call my accountability partner. I'm going to leave my environment. I'm going to walk through some basic things to walk away from this temptation because I know I'm not strong enough on my own. Make a plan. Number four, create ongoing safeguards. Create ongoing safeguards. This means that you've got to create systems in your life that guard you from temptation. We live in a world where sexual sin is so accessible, it means that you can access it at any moment without warning if you're not careful. So that means that you've got to make some specific intentional safeguards. This means that in the area of relationships, I'm a married man. I don't have a meeting with another woman who's not my wife behind a closed door. I just don't do it. Okay. The new office that we just got, we have a glass door in my office so that I can have a meeting because that's the, the rules. I, I don't go out to a, a dinner meeting with one woman and me. It doesn't happen because I have specific guidelines, specific plans to guard my heart and to guard any accusation. These are simple things. You know, one thing I do that I've done for years now is I don't watch anything on the television or, you know, on a movie until I've checked what the content is. And I'll be honest, if there's nudity and sexual scenes in it, I just don't watch it. That's where I'm at. That's how I've been for years. And I stay that way. You missed such a good movie. I don't really care. There's a lot of movies in the world. And there's like at least three you can watch if you keep those standards. <laughs> Number five, 
Number five. Number five. Get on mission. Get on mission. The fifth way that you can... uh, developing your freedom. And it's not one of these things, it's all of these things that we embody brokenness and gospel clarity. We make a plan, we create ongoing safeguards, and we get on mission. This means that when you're on fire for God, it's a lot easier to stay on fire for God. In other words, when you're focused on the things of God, the distractions of the flesh are much easier to fight away. When you are seeing people saved, when you're leading coworkers and friends to Christ, when you're praying for people and they're experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, well, then it's a lot harder for you to then walk away. You still can do it, but it's a lot harder for you to then walk away and fall back into sin because you say, no, this is worth it. I want to stay here. Why are you not volunteering? Why are you not serving in the church? Why are you not joining a servant team or joining the band? Or why are you not getting involved? Why are you not praying for the lost? When you get on mission, it gets you focused and you begin to see victory. Crucial, so important. Would you stand your feet with me, Ben, if you want to come? This stuff is huge, friends. And, you know, I was praying the last few days, and I need to be honest with you. I love this church. I love this church, and God has really blessed us. (coughs) Excuse me. God has really blessed us. Um, Greg, if you want to just... Get the band going. We're going to sing a song in just a second. You've been around, you know, it's three years we've been a church. And, um, you know, these sermons are not always the most popular ones. But uh, God has really blessed our church and we've grown. But, you know, I look back three years ago to when I was thinking about church and what God would do here and You know what I always wanted to stay away from? Is a crowd of people who like a sermon or like a music, you know, time. But that's all they ever are, is just a crowd. We could find bigger crowds. It's not the crowd that gets me excited. It's the church that gets me excited. And the church is full of people who are honest. You know, my heart breaks that so many of you don't ever receive prayer. It's like, well, I don't need to pray with someone. Baloney, yes, you do. In fact, that's a great way to display your brokenness, by the way. You say, I'm just going to fight this on my own. How's that going for you? And it just, you know... The church is about people who are honest, not people who are perfect, about people who are broken, who don't even understand themselves. That's the journey we're on. And yet God is healing us. He's putting us back together. He's restoring us. He's patient with us. Let me do something we don't always do here at City Church. Um, I'm going to ask just the members of our prayer team Make your way out of your seat and just uh, find a spot on either side if you would. We're going to need probably a significant number like all of our prayer team. So if you're part of the prayer team, go ahead and just find a spot. Thank you guys over there. Anybody over here could just fill in. I'm going to ask that men pray with men and women pray with women. Um, you know, my, just, my heart just aches. I just want to see us honest. You say, Justin, um, I've slept around. I've got all this baggage. Friend, there's no shame here. 
You say, I, I struggle with shameful sexual attractions, things that are shameful, and there's no shame here. You say, I've failed so many times. I've gone up for so many prayer times. There's no shame here. I'm not asking you today to consider coming up for prayer so that you can um, never struggle with sexual sin again. That's not going to happen, probably. Maybe the Holy Spirit will do something amazing, and I'm not, I'm not saying he won't do that. But most of the time, for most of us as humans, it's not a one-time deal. I'm going to ask you instead to come up for prayer to display a broken spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. I give them the whole kingdom. You don't realize that it's your brokenness or lack of brokenness that's keeping you from real freedom. You think you've got to put it all together to be free and you're putting it all together creates more bondage. We're going to sing a song in just a second whenever I let Dennis sing. And when I do... I'm going to pray before I do it. I'm just going to say amen. And I'm going to ask you to do something courageous, okay? I'm going to ask you, if this applies to you, you may be in the throes of sexual addiction. You may need healing from a past relationship where you've been broken. You may be in the midst of a relationship that's very broken and need God's grace and God's wisdom. You may have been wounded through some addiction in the past and now you need God to heal. I don't know your story. There's a million different ways this could go for you. But if you're saying this is resonating and I need to display my brokenness and I need to ask God to do a work in my spirit. When I say amen, I'm going to ask you to get your, out of the, get, get out of the seat. Now it's going to be difficult because there's other people and you have to push through and it's like, hi, I'm messed up. Can you please move out? out of my way and and what i want you to know in that moment is most of them are lying and so i'm the one that's honest here all right and i want you to get yourself out of your seat and pray with someone they're not going to pray for two hours for you all right but they're just going to pray god this is a, a line in the sand and then if that's you i want you to sign up for this class and i want you to make the time for the next seven or eight weeks and we'll get you all the information a couple weeks ahead of time don't worry we're not going to spring it on you tomorrow or anything But we're going to encourage you, fill out that card. And before you leave today, drop it in the bucket as you go. Because this is a time to be honest. It's a time to be healed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your glorious grace. Oh, God. How long can the facade go on? How long can there be a crowd and not a church? Jesus, I pray that you just make us honest. I pray, God, that you would help every one of us that's battling. Even if we've responded to 100 prayer times and things before, God, I pray that if if we're not in a victorious place, that Jesus, you'd give us brokenness so that we could begin the journey of healing. Holy Spirit, would you come? You know every story from the 14-year-old to the 60-year-old to everybody in between, from the man to the woman, from the person that's been married multiple times to the single person that so badly wants to be married. You know all the stories, God, and every one of us needs your healing. Would you come today and bring conviction? Would you come today and let this be a line that stand, the saying that we could say, I'm broken and I need healing. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and give us humility? Would you come and give us grace? Would you come and let this be a turning point in our own souls? In Jesus' name. Somebody here today that you were married in the past and whether you're divorced or your, your spouse died, you've really been battling sexually since that departure, since that separation. You just, I don't know what to do. God just wants to heal you today. He wants to give you grace today. He wants to strengthen you today. Thank you. It's not forever. He wants to strengthen you today, though. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. If that's you, if, you, if God's speaking to you, I want you to courageously find your way out of your seat and just go and pray with someone right now. Okay, this is your moment, by the way, right now. So move out. Say, excuse me, I need to pray with someone. Maybe it's something from the past. Maybe it's a struggle you're having currently. Maybe, whatever it is, whatever your story is, there's no judgment here. There's a million different stories, okay? But find your way to go pray with somebody right now. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. We're going to worship him for a few minutes and just give opportunity for prayer. Find another man, another woman on the side here. If you're a guy, pray with a guy. If you're a girl, we're going to pray with a girl. And just take some time to just draw the line in the sand. One and another say, you know what? We're drawing a line today. It's a new beginning. I'm stepping into a new level of brokenness. In Jesus' mighty name, thank you for your grace. We love you, God. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.